The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we'll get started. My name is Gabe, and um, I'm subbing for Mark Nunberg, our guiding teacher. Um, I work in the office here and teach on occasion. It's really great to be here with everyone. So I'll be sharing some thoughts and then we'll have time for a discussion. And the topic is living with vulnerability. And um, there's a quote about this I like. Ordinary people, us, we feel vulnerable sometimes. And wise people know they're vulnerable all the time. I've just been reflecting on and really feeling uh, in an embodied way um, that truth of of vulnerability and just really uh, exploring my relationship to it. It's so, when we start turning our mind in that direction, it's so omnipresent, at least for me, uh, Yeah, the vulnerability. And we can feel it. And what's our relationship to that? The Buddha really recommended this because it kind of wakes us up if we're um, living our lives superficially just to wake us up to the vulnerability inherent in life, if we're not already. Some of us may already have a lot of that, and just be in touch with that already. Um, but for those of us who, at times at least, aren't, the Buddha had um, many teachings, um, but one that I like and that we sometimes chant here is the five recollections um, the Buddha recommended that we just bring these to mind, these five facts, every day. Uh, And they are, I am subject to aging, have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness, have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death, have not gone beyond death. Everything that is dear to me, beloved, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And the last one, I'm the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions. Whatever I do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. For me, when I was preparing today and just bringing that to mind. It, it actually felt good because I felt a little bit actually of a relief, of a release from some other more superficial concerns and just to remember those truths feels grounding And um, in whatever way we acknowledge our vulnerability, 
then that last of the five kind of, to me, is um, a signal for what can happen. So we, you know, we wake up and we realize, oh yeah, this is a vulnerable situation here. And the, the last of the five, to me, is kind of, what do we do with that? You know, not knowing how long we have to live, not knowing what could be around the corner in this vulnerable, changing life. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to waste my time. I, I want to... Where can real happiness be found in this changing world? And, yeah, I just love that basic teaching on cause and effect. That's that, fi- that fifth reflection that our actions, the intentional quality behind our actions, that is a reliable source of happiness or a reliable source of unhappiness. So if we're going to, just on a really ordinary level of human happiness, if we're interested in happiness, instead of seeking after more impermanent, less reliable sources of happiness, we can put our attention to our actions, the ethical quality, the intentional quality, because that has real um, effects in our mind, sets in motion habits, I listened to a talk recently by Guy Armstrong who summarized the whole path of leading to happiness, to awakening, the Buddhist path. This is a Buddhist center for those who might be new. That just means that we found a lot of benefit in these teachings that have been passed down 2,600 years And so Guy Armstrong summarized, um, this was sort of his division, but I liked it, the whole path as being these three trainings of brightening the mind. So this is sort of that level of ordinary human happiness. And I just love that the Buddha didn't just talk about... um, the ultimate goal complete, unshakable release of the heart, the complete uprooting of greed, aversion, and delusion from the mind. He also talked about how to be an ordinary, happy human being. And um, the three main ways are practicing generosity, practicing an, an open heart that is exploring the happiness of non-stinginess, you could say. Every time the heart wants to be stingy, we have the option to either be generous or not. We're exploring that happiness. Is it, actual, is it actually a happiness? Does it actually make us happy? to give our time, energy, love. In my experience, yeah. When I 
when it, there's actually that intention of generosity. It's actually the intention more than the gift, you know. It's not so much about what we give. It's about that in that moment when the heart is giving, it's open, it's letting go. And we can practice this in very simple ways. And a lot of it is about noticing how easy it is to be stingy, how easy it is to feel lack. It's so easy, and it's not even so much... Um, you know, we all are in different situations and we can all give different things, different, yeah. But it's the, the quality. No matter who we are, we can be a little generous with our time. So that's generosity. And the second is sila, ethical conduct. There isn't a translation, I think, that really captures, because we have a lot of baggage generally around ethics and being good and not being bad, and there's a lot, can be a lot of judgment in there. But these are all understood as sources of happiness, sila. And I think it's talked about as a beautiful adornment, like the most beautiful thing. And I was reflecting on that recently and like, yeah, something about that rings true. Like when I when you see someone who just has that integrity, you can trust them. There's something beautiful about that. Just being careful with our actions because we know it's easy to cause harm. And then metta or loving kindness. Sometimes talked about as just the absence of ill will, a heart that isn't caught up in comparing, in ju- <coughs> excuse me, in judging, but open, receptive, available. So we can brighten the mind through cultivating generosity, sila, careful conduct, and an open heart. So that's the first of the three. Guy Armstrong said, we can brighten the mind, we can cultivate inner peace, and we cultivate understanding the nature of things, seeing clearly, which ultimately uproots the, the deep habits of greed, aversion, and delusion. So we can cultivate what he called ordinary human happiness in our relationships. I mean, those three of generosity, our care with our actions, and loving kindness, we do those in our lives. We don't just do those while we're sitting We need other people. We're, we're, we're in relationship with other people. And so it's not even so much looking for you know, a different life or different opportunities. It's right where we're living, right in the relationships we have. How is our heart showing up? And how is that a cause for either happiness or unhappiness? There's so much to learn there. So much we can 
really not necessarily just do by force of will, but we can study and and be interested in that lawful unfolding. Which qualities of mind in relationship support happiness? And then the next is a little more refined. Even if our relationships are harmonious, the mind can still cause us suffering. So we're really cultivating inner peace lawfully through putting down what's agitating And then, based on those happinesses of a more stable, harmonious life and some skill in the mind retreating from things, the happiness of seclusion, then the mind is more bright and more content, more stable, and can see more clearly, see the roots of suffering. How does suffering come to be? And this is where investigation, curiosity, with that more powerful, stable mind, we see, we actually see in a moment how suffering arises. And the mind, wisdom, abandons, clinging, resisting. It's not something that we do It happens, wisdom sees clearly and abandons clinging, puts it down because it's stressful. And over time, the more that we cultivate this stable tool, the stable mind, the more we get good data And the more the mind is able to live without feeling burdened, we get lighter and lighter. So that's sort of a broad view of how our whole lives really are part of the path. Nothing is outside of it. And we're interested in this path because in some level we're aware of our vulnerability at these different levels in our lives, with our minds, and with the really deep habits. So in some ways, even before all of these trainings of the mind, there has to be some acknowledgement of vulnerability There's a discourse from the Buddha's teachings talking about there's two um, paths once we acknowledge vulnerability or dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word, often translated as suffering or stress. It either leads to bewilderment, to grieving, mourning, lamenting, beating our breast, becoming bewildered, or overcome with pain, mind exhausted, 
leads to searching outside, who knows, a way or two to stop this pain. So, dukkha results either in bewilderment or in search. So, or in denial. I added that one. Because sometimes we're just, yeah, in denial. So it's important, this acknowledgement of vulnerability. Because it really being in touch with it in an honest way sparks, provokes that deep wish. Who, who might know a way to stop this pain? And so maybe we come across teachings like the Buddhist teachings, which seem to make sense. Things are lawful. And uh, we might take up these practices of generosity, ethical conduct, loving kindness, stilling or quieting the mind, and investigating, investigating how suffering arises. So that was sort of a broader overview of the path. And I want to talk about vulnerability, and it really fits in mostly, it can come at any point in the path. And Like I just said, it, it has to be part of the beginning, otherwise we wouldn't, we would be at home watching TV if there wasn't some, some exposure, some acknowledgement to the vulnerability. But, um, but I'll be speaking about it now mostly in terms of this last training of seeing clearly, understanding the nature of things. So when we have that whole map in mind, we can remember that. Because sometimes we, we hear the wisdom teachings and we feel like, oh, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, clinging leads to suffering. Resisting the way things are leads to suffering. So I just have to be with the way things are. But in this map I laid out, that's the last step. First, we build the foundation of stability and happiness through our relationships and just our brightening the mind, cultivating a beautiful mind and a mind that can put everything down, that has some experience of of stillness, of peace. And then with that mind, it's easier to look at something like vulnerability, which can't be, which can be difficult to, to hold in its deepest levels without that stability. But ultimately, it's that last part of the path of seeing clearly, of understanding. And it, you know, we say understanding, but a lot of it is seeing the ways the mind already thinks it understands. So seeing the the ways the mind already relates to vulnerability and how that supports suffering. But this quality of interest and investigation, there's this uh, term, psychonauts, like an astronaut, but psychonaut. And that, to me... uh, I've always had that investigative bent in my practice, although 
recently I'm more emphasizing the, the, the first elements because that was less developed and it's hard to really look at things because life is intense. It's hard to really be with things as they are without, without the confidence that comes from, from cultivating a stable mind. But I really like that about this path is that uh, the understanding is that it's wisdom, it's seeing clearly that liberates the mind. Not getting something, not getting somewhere else, not believing in something. It's just a matter of data and that the mind hasn't collected good enough data. The mind hasn't been stable enough to collect good enough data. The mind's been pushed around by our likes and dislikes. How often is our mind in that really balanced, receptive place where it can see clearly? But our mind doesn't have to be in complete balance, we can, we're always um, more balanced or less balanced. And at any point, the mind can be interested in exploring how suffering is arising. So basically, this exploration around vulnerability it can be helpful if you're not familiar with the Four Noble Truths, which are really um, really at the heart of what the Buddha taught. Because basically, this exploration around vulnerability is another way of talking about that there is the First Noble Truth, there is suffering, there is stress. This isn't a metaphysical truth, this is a subjective truth. If anyone here hasn't had that experience should come up and tell us what it's like. I mean, that'd be nice to never to not know that experience. But we do in little ways and big ways. And that there's a cause. This is where the investigation comes in. There's a cause. The cause is identified as clinging or resisting. when that cause is abandoned, not by me, but by wisdom, then there's cessation of that stress. And there's a path, that's the fourth, that supports that being more likely. And basically the path is what I was talking about earlier, of brightening the mind, cultivating inner peace, and investigating, being interested in how suffering arises in a very direct way. (laughs) (laughs) Having fun or... (laughs) So a lot of my thoughts, my reflections around vulnerability really have to do with that first noble truth of there is stress, 
or we could say there is vulnerability, that experience. <laughs> and, uh, and how do we relate to that? And each of the Four Noble Truths has a, an action that goes along with it. And the one for the First Noble Truth is the truth of suffering should be understood. And I in- interpret that broadly to mean, basically, we should come face-to-face with that. We should investigate our relationship to that. So what is our relationship to vulnerability? Just really honestly, we could reflect how often, I mean, not even that, you know, we're in complete denial, but how do we feel about it? When, we, when it's pointed out to us or when we notice it or when, like when we did the reflection earlier, when we bring that to mind, those five really basic truths, aging, illness, death, being separated from what's dear, And it's not about, you know, which cannot, can, can happen having a pessimistic view. Oh, nothing matters because everything's impermanent. And that's, a, a, I think, uh, a big part of my reflections recently because cause I can have that tendency personally. You know, there's different personality types Generally in Buddhism, we talk about three main ones of the aversive type, our tendency is to push things away, that's me. (laughs) The greedy type, our tendency is to want. And deluded type, tendency is to disconnect. You can see them all as ways of dealing with vulnerability in a way. I feel vulnerable, I'm just going to obsess about everything that could go wrong, and maybe then I'll be safe, or I'll just really surround myself with pleasant things so I don't have to remember that truth. Or I'll just not really be here and then I don't have to be in touch with that. So we don't want to misinterpret the teachings as being pessimistic, like life doesn't matter because things are impermanent. It's kind of like coming to face with that truth of vulnerability more honestly and openly for me has kind of exposed that basic, in my personality, approach. And then seeing it more clearly, it just becomes clear. That's not a way to happiness. Like avoiding things doesn't feel good, isn't a way to happiness. It's true, like, yeah, I can see that uh, things are impermanent. Whatever happiness I might get is impermanent from things. But aversion is also suffering, and fear is also suffering, and avoidance, not being wholehearted in life. Like, 
a strategy in life of just getting by, that's deadening. And other people might have other strategies, you know, more of a greed type. But I think seeing that more clearly, like, oh, it's just vulnerability, and I have a choice. I don't have a choice about being vulnerable or not, but I have a choice about what I'm going to do with my life, where I'm going to put my energy. And so, again, it depends on personality, but for me, I've just been... Um, seeing that that habit of relating to life in an aversive way, a fearful way, is suffering. And just seeing that more clearly. And um, and then you come to face with vulnerability itself more more clearly, which is also hard. But at least there's not the added difficulty of thinking it's somehow productive to be relating with aversion. So there's more engagement because there's nothing else to do with life other than engage. We're always engaging in one way or the other. And we can set in motion beautiful things, impermanent beautiful things, but they're still beautiful. And it's better than setting in motion impermanent, unhelpful things. So... Yeah, it's interesting because I think that this line can be really fuzzy in our minds. Like, well, if I acknowledge my vulnerability, that's weak, or then, then I have to be afraid. Like, or, yeah, it's like acknowledging, acknowledging it will somehow, yeah, make me more vulnerable. But we're already vulnerable. And actually defending against that, resisting that, is just extra psychic weight. I've been noticing this sometimes just in very simple situations, or it's just clear sometimes, um, just leaving my apartment, and there's more of a sense of vulnerability, just being out in the world, and just seeing seeing that and being more honest, yeah, that, that is vulnerability, and just seeing that my mind's habitual relationship is one of this painful armoring against that. And that, the, and just in seeing that, again, this is where wisdom, not me, makes that. Like, And it also abandons that, you know, for a moment at least. And it also, in that moment, becomes clear just the mind's view around vulnerability, like that it's bad, it's a personal problem for me, as if any, everyone else wasn't also vulnerable, you know? And so just in seeing that, then my mind also sees that that's painful because that's aversion, that's a form of 
in a sense, there's a sense of meanness in it. Like, because I'm not really being honest and tender with that tender part, that vulnerable part of myself. And so it's such an interesting and somewhat unusual experience. It almost feels like walking out, like just to, because when I have, when I see that clearly, I have the option then. When I don't see it, I just walk around, you know, armored. But when I see it, then, and, and there's that option, it's like walking unarmored. And what is that like? And, it, and it's, it's unfamiliar. And it does feel more exposed. But it's almost like we suffer less because we're not surprised when something does come and push our buttons. It's like it's more painful when, you know, when we're going through all the trouble of armoring and then something comes and, right? It's already this way. We're already vulnerable. So it's not a question about that. It's just whether we we're adding extra tension on top of that. And there's a particular flavor in those moments, along with the somewhat disconcerting, unfamiliar feeling of, of exposure or more clarity around that exposure, but there's also the relief of not carrying around that armor. And it there's, it, there's a scent there that's freedom, ease, and it's really trustworthy. I think this is important in meditation circles and maybe just my personality too, but letting in that vulnerability um, and seeing it more clearly for what it is. It's just a human animal that's scared and has wants and needs. So I think this too is where the teachings... uh, the Buddhist teachings really help because there are other teachings that are really useful um, around vulnerability, but they might still have a flavor of um, that it's somehow personal. And then it's like, well, I don't want to look at that because I don't want to be vulnerable. I want to be strong. But when we just see it clearly, it's like we don't have to take it personally. And it's not everything. It's just one truth that there is a human animal that is vulnerable. That doesn't mean we can't be happy. It doesn't mean we can't learn things about how the mind works. So for me, this um, investigation... Yeah, it, it makes 
being human less personal. And all that goes into being human. And then I actually take better care of the human animal than if I am not in touch with with the vulnerability or if I'm if I'm kind of um, thinking about things like as impermanent and unsatisfactory, impersonal, and so I don't have to take care of this human animal. So, so we just work with what's here, what's presenting itself. And we're still exploring. We don't just stop, you know, at the level of vulnerability and our human wants and needs and take care of that because we're still investigating because we notice that it does feel better to feed myself than to not feed myself but I keep getting hungry and so that's not that's not the final answer pleasant experiences there's a teaching that I find useful in this regard around gratification so the Buddha said we should know about sensual pleasures or really about any aspect. I really like this because it's including the whole range of what we actually know. should know the real gratification that comes from sensual pleasures in life. And we should know any drawbacks, like they're impermanent. And we should be interested in a happiness that's not dependent on either needing them or not wanting them because they're impermanent and they're just going to get caught up in them. So this is the gratification, <clears throat> the gratification, the danger, and the escape are the three words. So it's okay to know the gratification. In fact, we want to know the gratification because if we're not really intimate with what we actually do get from ordinary human happiness, sensual pleasures, then we won't be as wise about them. So I've been reflecting on the path as all along being a path of pleasure. And it's just a question of um, just with our own data that we're gathering and with some teachings going for more and more pleasure. Maybe not more and more, but more refined, like more satisfying pleasures. We could, we could, it's all a science experiment. We could just take a week, just completely indulge every sense pleasure, every sense desire that arises. We just go for it. We're just going to try that out. We've probably done that in moments at least. And there's some pleasure. There's some happiness 
you could even use that word, especially if, you know, it's not causing harm and we can enjoy that, can relax the mind. And, and then it's over. And then there's another moment. And it doesn't really... We still want after that, want other things. Still susceptible to pain, loss. And what our heart really wants, at least what my heart wants, it wants a deep peace, connection. So we keep looking. And the happinesses that I talked about at the beginning turn out through our investigation to be more reliable and more satisfying. The happinesses of our intentions, basically. It's an interesting exploration. I mean, we have this we can explore this so much in our daily lives. You know, what we do with our minds and where we look for happiness. Not to judge, but just to be really honest and look. Where are we looking for happiness and what are the results we're getting? And then, then it makes sense why people, why there's what's called the happiness of renunciation. And it's not uh, something from, that comes from outside like, oh, that's impermanent, just don't even bother. <laughs> you know, that's just depressing. It's the happiness of renunciation is the happiness of as nice as that would be. It's nicer to not need that or to not need to be against it. So it's not aversion. It's not like, oh, that's not worth it. I mean, there can be that sense, but it's not, there's no judgment. And it's not something we do because of someone else tells us. It's a choice we make. It's like simplicity, valuing simplicity, seclusion. Not, but again, not because we think it's the right thing to do. It's just something for us to investigate, whether that happiness, which we can explore through meditation, of putting things down, whether that's satisfying. And so that's sort of that progression. We just explore the happinesses that are available and make use of them in the way they are available. The ordinary human happinesses of living with more integrity, with more of an open heart, with more generosity. The happinesses of even, as nice as that is, being someone who has to be the good person or who has to 
hold that. It's nice to just put it all down. So that's the happiness of seclusion. And the happiness of, yeah, when it's really simple. Nobody here, no problem. Just in a moment, because the mind is content, it sees that it's stressful to need to even own any aspect of the experience. And then the mind more and more knows that happiness of letting go, non-clinging to any experience. And um, Joseph Goldstein talks about this process, which we're always in different places, and there's always certain moments when the mind is does know that happiness of letting go. It is just things happening. It's not personal. And there's that freedom. And then the next moment, an old memory comes up, and we are. We know exactly who we are and who we've been, and... So, and it's right in those places of vulnerability where we don't deny the vulnerability, like, oh, no, everything's impersonal. But we also, with our stability from cultivating, brightening the mind, then we're more interested in um, that experience of vulnerability and whether we actually know everything about it especially in these psychic knots. That's really where the freedom is there, is in knowing that we, don't, we haven't actually been able to meet it fully because the habits around them have been so tight. So it's kind of like in these difficult places, these places of vulnerability, we're just acknowledging that we don't actually know what that experience is because it's been too difficult to be with. But just knowing that we don't actually know it, we just know our reaction to it and our stories around it. And so then that's okay. We just take care of ourselves in whatever way we can. But in moments where there is more stability, then that's those places, those moments are where we can have courage and we can not courage to tell ourselves a different story or to, in any way, try to spin the situation. It's that investigation. I don't actually know what this is. I know it looks to be really scary and dangerous. And there has to actually be more interest than fear in those moments. And that's where things start to look different. There's a different perspective And Joseph Goldstein talks about this as just the range of what's an acceptable experience. That range, right now our range is at a certain point. There's certain experiences that fall outside of that. But just through that very gradual process, strengthening the mind and being interested, playing those edges where it's safe enough, then that range of acceptable experiences gets bigger and bigger 
until until it's wide open. And we get lighter and lighter because there's less and less work to shut out any of those areas of vulnerability. So that's the path. It's gradual. It includes our whole life. We start where we are. And I found that this exploration around vulnerability in a really intimate way has been a really interesting doorway just to see what my relationship is with that. It's so fundamental, and yet we can be so sure that it's not okay. But it gets lighter, it feels better to not have to be perfect. So we have some time now. Be curious to hear from people's experience, how you relate to vulnerability, how opening to vulnerability has supported more lightness, more ease. Yeah, or anything that comes to mind. Questions. And we'll use the mic and say your name if you don't mind. Yeah, my name is Kermit, and, um, you know, Mark told me something that really helped me ease into vulnerability. It was right here in this room. Maybe some of you were here, but um, I was having trouble facing up to something that happened. And Mark said there's a false sense of self that feels it needs to be defended rather than just being with pain and letting it move. And uh, I, I thought, yeah, that's, that's right. There's, there's absolutely nothing to defend, you know, if you think about it. Um, but, you know, I can see where all, a lot of the suffering in my life I've created by, you know, defending that false sense of self, you know, the self-cherishing thought. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And that's so great to see that. Thanks, yeah. Trevor's got the mic. I think this uh, person right here have their hand up. Um, I'd be curious if you could define vulnerability and if you think you can be too vulnerable Mm. all the time Mm -hmm. and the consequences of that. Yeah, that's a really good question. What's your name? Oh, Jennifer. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is kind of um, at the heart of it. Like, what do we think vulnerability is? And for me, it's uh, a feeling of exposure. Whenever I'm less superficial and more intimate, with things, there's just that sense. Like anything can happen at any time. I am vulnerable. 
And as an animal that wants to be safe, that's somewhat scary, if not terrifying at times. But that's a feeling. And the question is, when I'm intimate with that, how do I relate to that feeling? Because that's always a choice. The feeling, the perception of instability, changingness, I trust that perception when I when I'm you know when that becomes clear that things are just changing, just moving. But my response to that that and if it feels scary, how do I relate to that? So and I, and I think this ties in with what you were saying like is it can we be too vulnerable? I mean I think what you're saying is how do we hold that and how do we hold that with other people? But if we're really, I mean, my experience has been when I'm, and I'm really exploring this these days, when I'm really intimate with that vulnerability, I'm more careful because I'm more intimate with it. I have better boundaries because I'm intimate with it. I'm more okay being who I am because I've, to some degree, in some moments, made peace. Yeah, I'm a vulnerable being here. And pretending otherwise is just more stress. Now, wisdom also recognizes how much wisdom there is. So when there isn't a lot of wisdom, the mind recognizes, well, the mind's just going to put on the armor and that's okay. Because that's just, that's just how it is. And we can notice, yeah, that, that kind of hurts to put on that armor. And so it's never about telling ourselves, oh, I just need to walk out you know, completely exposed. Because that's just you know, a fixed view or some idea. It's more an internal investigation. How am I relating to that when I notice it? But the actual response and how we behave, that can look very different in different situations. And it, in my experience, it will be more appropriate, more compassionate. And I do think that you know, a firm boundary and how much, because other people aren't necessarily practicing being in touch with their vulnerability. So you're in touch with your vulnerability, but you sense somebody else is, isn't then it's very wise and appropriate to not expose that tender part of yourself. But that's wisdom, because we're in touch with our vulnerability. Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, I think we have to leave it here. It's 8.30. Thanks, everyone, for sticking through it. (laughs) And Patricia has a few announcements. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.